0: Well, if there are any history buffs in this place, then you would know the first person to climb Mount Everest is... <laughs> Close. <laughs> Someone just said Neil Armstrong. Sorry? Bear Grylls, yes, Bear So Sir Edmund Hillary, actually. Um, so he climbed Mount Everest in 1953, and he was knighted the same year by the Queen, right? Uh, in 1985, he, made, uh, he, he was made New Zealand's highest commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. Uh, in 1995, he received the British realm's highest award, the Order of the Gator. Does anyone know what that is, the Order of the Gator? No, I had no idea what that was as well. <laughs> but they only give that to 24 people. So despite all these achievements and awards, is there's one story which Australian author and pastor John Dixon shares with, um, with us that shows Sir Edmund Hillary's humility, right? So one of, uh, on one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, uh, Sir Edmund was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. Uh, they begged for a photo with him, the great Sir Edmund Hillary, right? So they, they handed him an ice pick, and so they said, uh, can you just please look the part? And as they set up for the photograph, um, another, pa- another climber passed the group, not recognising that it was Sir Edmund Hillary holding the, um, the axe, the ice pick. So the climber passed him and he said, Hey, excuse me, that's actually not how you hold the ice pick. Let me show you. Everyone stood around in amazed silence as Sir Edmund Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the ice pick, and happily went on with the photo. Uh, just like how we see Sir Edmund Hillary's humility today, what we're going to see is uh, is in Philippians two, the apostle Paul's call for Christians to live in humility. We're going to see what uh, we're going to see that when we look at Jesus, when we realize who He is, what He's done for us, we can't help but be humbled. So today, our passage is from Philippians two, one to eleven. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, open up there, or it's going to be on the screen at the back. Verse two. Therefore. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue, uh, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 1, we saw the Apostle Paul give thanks and uh, comforting the Philippian church. We saw how boldly he exclaimed, "To live is Christ, and to die is gain." And we also saw his exhortation, right, and his command to the Philippian church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In chapter two today, uh, the apostle Paul continues his encouragement to the church. Right, he continues his encouragement to the church for unity. But there's a specific command that it advises, and it's this, in the words of uh, Christian pastor J.I. Packer. Be unified by being humble and caring, looking to Christ as the perfect example of humble servanthood in his incarnation, crucifixion, and exaltation. What's he saying here? He's saying that true humility comes only by looking at Jesus. So chapter two is the call for every Christian to live in humility. And what does, and Paul doesn't just leave us there, right? He doesn't just say, live in humility and that's it. But he points us to Jesus, the humble king. He says, look to Jesus for your example of humility. And so today we're going to see three things from the passage that shows us the humble nature of Jesus. Number one, Jesus, the two in one. Jesus, fully human, fully God. Number two, Jesus, the suffering servant. And number three, Jesus, the name above all names but before we get to these points right we need to define humility because your definition of humility my definition of humility the bible's definition of humility it may be all different verse 3 and 4 says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interest of the others. What does Paul mean by humility? Well, let's start with what it isn't. Humility isn't insecurity, right? It's not low self-esteem or being a pushover. Jesus wasn't a pushover, but he confronted people in their sin. He humbly loved them enough to talk to, to tell the truth. Paul knew who he was. He wasn't afraid of being truthful in love. Humility isn't indecisiveness. It's not inactivity. It's not playing it safe, and it's not hiding your talents in the ground. That's not what the Bible says humility is. But the Bible shows us that Jesus is the ultimate standard for biblical humility. Right? He depended on God's mercy. He was unconcerned for power, prestige, privilege, position, and he obeyed God's word. And that's why Paul in this chapter is pointing us to Jesus that's why he's telling us to have the same mindset as Jesus in verse 5. To have the same mindset of Christ means knowing the mind of Christ. Let me say that again. To have the same mindset of Christ means knowing the mind of Christ. So how do we know the mind of Christ? Well, in these next few verses, the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse into the inner workings of Christ's mind, into the nature of the humble king. And so the first thing that we see about the humble nature of Jesus is that he was fully man and fully God. Jesus is one person with two natures, two in one. Jesus' humility described in verse 6 says, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was the same essence, the same nature of God. It doesn't just refer to his external appearance, but to his being. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what Paul is showing us here is that Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Even though he was in the same form of God, he didn't count equality with God as something to selfishly exploit The Bible teaches us that that Jesus wasn't just someone. He wasn't just a prophet, right? He wasn't just a person, but he was and is the most high God. And so if Jesus didn't exploit his status with with, uh, God as equal, then what did he do? Verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. When Paul writes here that Christ Emptied himself, right, in verse 7. He doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of divinity. That's that's something that you have to really uh, get into your mind. But emptied he means that he gave up his position, his privilege, his prestige, his privileges. He set that all humbly aside in becoming a man and suffering in our place. Now, this is where it may get a little challenging, So the only way for the Son of God, Jesus, to fulfill the prophecies about himself was to take on the form of a slave, to enter this world and be born of a man. You know, when Paul says he took on the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men in human form, he's not saying that Christ was only human-like or only appeared as human. Jesus, when he entered this world, he was one divine person with two natures, two in one. Two natures in one person. Jesus didn't alternate between uh, being human and being divine, right? Think about this. These two natures are united without mixture, without confusion, without separation or division. They don't mix together to create a mysterious third kind of nature, right? A common heresy, right, a common misconception that the early church had to fight off was that... uh, was that there was this new third kind of nature, that the human nature of Christ absorbed into the divine nature. But this view actually isn't in the Bible at all, because it demolishes Christ's deity, right? His essence of God, and His humanity. It's like when you drop uh, paint or ink into water. The result is neither pure ink or pure water. So if Christ's our two natures are mixed together, then he is no longer fully God and no longer fully man. You have to think of it like this. Jesus, the son of God, he gave up his position, prestige, privileges, not by subtracting deity, right? Not by subtracting the unique nature of God, but by adding humanity, right? This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't stop being God, but that he took on humanity. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Number two, Jesus, the suffering servant. In the Gospel of Matthew, you read that like an ugly competitive spirit developed between the 12 apostles. Right? Specifically between James, John, and their mother. right? So uh, James, John, and their mother, they tried to get Jesus to promise them privileged thrones in the kingdom. It says in Matthew 20, 24, when the 10 heard this, who's the 10? The, the other 12 disciples, right? They were indignant at the two brothers. They were angry, and so, when, and so you can imagine the 12 men starting to throw harsh words and, you know, various sign language to each of the other disciples, and it forced Jesus to call a timeout, to call them together and tell them, tell them this, that whoever wants to be the, gre- the greatest among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be last, even as Jesus came to serve and save, right? You have to serve if Jesus had you uh, sit down and, and tell you off or something, you'd, you'd think, oh, you know, I've got this. I'm not going to make this mistake again. But several days later, the apostles gathered together in a room to celebrate Passover. And as the apostles wandered in, uh, no one would stoop low enough to perform the servant's task of washing feet. Culturally, when people walked into someone's home back then, the lowest servant, right, they would often be tasked with washing the guest's feet. And you have to think about the culture of that day. Open sandals were the big thing. What's the big thing in the shoes right now? I don't know, Air Force Ones or whatever. But they were like sandals. Sandals were like, everyone had sandals. <laughs> sandals were the hip thing. Um Tessas are hip, not hip. Tess are um, popular now. Transport was through camels and horses, right? Everyone traveled through camels, horses, other animals, donkeys, And if you've ever been around animals, they just poop anytime, anywhere, right? And so you've got to think about the disciples' feet. It's pretty grot. But (laughs) you've got to think about that image. Have that image in in your mind. So as they recline at the table, right, as they're halfway through dinner, right, uh, Jesus begins to get up from the table. He begins to remove his outer garment. He begins to wrap a towel around his body. He pours water into a basin. And he begins slowly moving around the circle of disciples, washing their feet, wiping them with their towel. The Son of God, Jesus, he dressed like a servant and washed the feet of his prideful, arrogant creatures. You know, that's such a beautiful image of what humility is all about. But we once again see Jesus' humility through his death. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It says that Jesus humbled himself. Think about that. No one needed to humble him. Jesus didn't regard anything or anyone beneath him, not even death. And so when we read verse 8, it shows us the radical measure, the magnitude of Christ's humility that he didn't even regard himself above death, even the most painful, shameful death, crucifixion. You know, the cross was considered to be an appropriate death for slaves and, and rebels because it wasn't just designed to kill, but it was designed to shame. Uh, the victim would be stripped to no or few clothes, and, and they would typically be nailed, to, uh, nailed through the ankles or the wrists. And they would often die by suffocation, when the victim couldn't lift themselves up to draw in another breath. And so Jesus died in excruciating pain and shame on the cross. But it was different to all the others. Jesus' suffering on the cross, it doesn't equal or come close to the others who were crucified. Because Jesus bore the curse of sin, as we see in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And as a result, Jesus suffered the wrath of God as an atoning substitute and sacrifice for us. When we think about the cross, it should remind us of the measure of Jesus' humility, the lengths to which he was willing to go in obedience to his Father. No one needed to humble Jesus. Pilate didn't humble him. The Romans didn't humble him, but Jesus humbled himself. The most humblest man to ever live is Jesus, and he was willing to go to the depths, to the lowest place possible, to obey God the Father. I love this quote: "Behold, behold how the lowest point of Christ descent displayed the highest peak of his love. Jesus went from the highest place of heavenly blessing to the lowest place of earthly curse. Death on a cross. What does this mean? It means that Jesus had to come to us, to where we were, in order to rescue us. If someone falls into a hole or a pit, we don't go meet them halfway. One author says it like this. Our rescue from sin and death required Jesus to go all the way to where we were, enslaved in complete condemnation. The Son of God left the courts of heaven and laid aside his crown to bear the dreadful curse on the cross. And so when we look to the cross, it makes sense to why Paul is telling us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others' more significant than yourself. This is why Paul is telling us to have the same mind as Christ because humility is the path for living a life worthy of the gospel. And we won't get far if we keep our eyes on ourselves or looking at each other. And so we need to keep our focus and our gaze fixed on Jesus and the work of Jesus. Because when we see. Jesus, we see that he was the ultimate act of humility. Without Jesus going to the cross for us, we would still be trying to earn our way to salvation. Number three, Jesus, the name above all names. Verse 9 to 11 reads, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whenever you're reading your Bibles, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Right? Because Paul is trying to show us something magnificent. He's trying to show us something amazing. He's saying, guys, don't miss this next bit. And so in verse 9, we read that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. But why did God do that? Well, if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, it makes total sense. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Was this not what Jesus did for us? He lowered himself to the place of a servant. He humbly took on the nature of man and he was obedient to death. But in doing so, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. But what was the event that kicked off Christ's exaltation? It was the resurrection. The great message of the resurrection is that he lives, that Jesus lives, that the grave couldn't hold him down. Jesus defeated death and sin through his resurrection. But it wasn't just that. But after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's Acts 2.33. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says that after he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven where he now rules. Paul is trying to show us that yes, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility, but he's pointing us to see that Jesus reigns. He rules and reigns over every detail of life in in this life and the one to come. You know, I know in this room, every single one of us, we're either coming out of a storm, we're going into a storm, or we're currently in a storm. And the truth is that The truth that we have to hold on to is that every aspect of life, whether good or bad, is in the complete control and reign of Jesus, including the storms that we're going to face in 2023. But even more than that, a time is coming when every sphere, heaven, earth, under the earth, will acknowledge the universal reign of Jesus. One, one commentary puts it like this, the realm of God and the angels, heaven, The realm of humanity, earth, and the realm of the underworld with the demons and the devil under the earth, will all acknowledge the universal reign of Jesus. All will bow. No sphere is exempt. Verse 10 and 11 says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about this. The phrase in heaven, on earth and under the earth. It refers to every single being in the universe. In heaven, angels, angelic beings. On earth, every earthly inhabitant, you and me, human beings. Under the earth refers to our dead human beings and fallen spirits, the devil. One author says it like this. No knee in the universe is excluded, be it human, angelic, or demonic. This means that some will bow with spontaneous ecstasy, others with with grudging, mourning, and shame. But you know, Paul doesn't just come up with this amazing verse by himself, but he's actually drawing it directly from Isaiah 45. He says, by myself I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You know, and this entire chapter is about God declaring His sovereign rule in in history and salvation. And so when God declared that every knee will bow and and every tongue confess in Isaiah, this means regardless of whether you believe in God or not, regardless of your spiritual state, You will bow your knee to Jesus. The passage is also telling us that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not just for the Christians who confess Jesus as Lord. You know, have you thought about why we gather on a Sunday? Why we do what we do on a Sunday? Why we gather and worship and confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, it's a foreshadow, right? It's a foreshadow of what is to come. What we're going to do, we're anticipating what every single being in the universe will do. When Jesus returns, every tongue in all creation will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every believing heart will shout and cry at the top of our lungs in song and voice that Jesus is Lord. And every unbelieving heart will confess it too. But in submission and despair, even Satan and the fallen angels will do it. Their knees will bow and their tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. How crazy is that? The question for us today is, which side are you on? Which side will you be on? Will you be confessing out of joy or out of submission? Because on that day, every soul from every age will confess. And we can't forget that the only reason why we even get to make this choice is because Jesus humbled himself to the lowest point possible. So what does this all mean for us today? How are we meant to live humbly? How are we meant to be humble? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us one part of the answer in verse 3. He says, do not do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. We live humbly by counting others as more significant than ourselves and by looking out for the interests of others. Because that's directly related to what we understand about Jesus and what we believe he did for us. Having the mindset of putting others first is the same mindset as Jesus. But what does it look like practically? How do we do that? Well, it looks like meeting the needs of those around you. Right? It's not just a money thing. You can be generous with your finances and provide for the needs of others, but you can also be generous with your time, your resources, your actions. And so when you look at your life and those around you, what is it that you can do to put the interests of others ahead of your own? For every person, it's going to look slightly different depending on your season, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you have a job or not. But we can all do something to put the interests of others ahead of us. Do you know a family with young kids? Then why don't you buy them dinner so they don't have to cook? Amen. Amen. Start small. Start small. Send a message to someone who's younger than you. Encourage them to continue their walk with God. Message someone that's older than you. Encourage them to do the same. Buy someone's groceries for a week. How crazy is that? Send someone a handwritten card. Buy someone's petrol for a month, a year. Is that too much? <laughs> Maybe a week. <laughs> let's, take it, let's take it one day at a time, hey right, guys? <laughs> you know, as you do that, you'll find yourself walking in step with what the Apostle Paul is saying in, to the Philippine church. I remember in the, in the COVID lockdowns, uh, Chris and Fatima, they, they blessed me with a dinner from Ubi's. They were like, James, get whatever you want. And, you know, I know for them it wasn't a massive thing. But for me, I really did feel uh, their generosity. And their blessing. And I I was super blessed by it. A couple of years ago, uh, we had a sister who was just going through a rough time. A full-time student, working part-time. Her father passed away, and her car broke down. Like, completely broke down. So, the church gathered together, right? And we pitched in for a new car. A whole bunch of full-time students pitched in for a new car. Did we raise enough to buy the car? No, Okay? But, we, but it was the thought, it was putting others first, ahead of our own needs, that mattered in that situation. Last Saturday night, to break our fast, you know, Mel, Pastor Mel graciously donated dinner to 18 people. Now, it wasn't cheap, but it was a way to put the interests of others ahead of our own. It's these small things. On Christmas night, Joyce, me and Pastor Steve and Mel, they put on a dinner for those that didn't have anywhere to go. You know, it's these little moments of continually putting others ahead of our own that helps us practice humility. And so for you this week, right, what can you do to put the interests of others ahead of your own? Philippians 2 is such an amazing reminder for all of us to live humbly, to look at the interests of others and do nothing out of selfish ambition. You know, but if we just left it at that, thank you, Andy. If we just left it at that, right, then today's sermon would be nothing more than just a self-help talk. That's it. Be humble. Live like that. Amazing. Bye. You know, but but the call for us, right, the call for us in Philippians 2 is to live in humility by following Christ and his example. Someone once asked a great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, how does one become humble? and i think his answer sums up philippians 2 so well and this was his answer a friend was asking me the other day how can i be humble he felt there was pride in him and he wanted to get to know, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it he seemed that uh, he seemed to think that i had some patent remedy and could tell him do this or do that and you will be humble i said i have no method or technique I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. How good is that? This is the first step of humility. All the other stuff of doing good and putting others first is great and it's needed, but it's an effect. It's a result from looking into the face of Jesus because humility is not something that we can create in ourselves, right? Rather, you look at Jesus, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. We must first behold one who was high above all and yet didn't regard anything as beneath him in saving us. You know, just as we saw in the upper room during the Last Supper, Jesus, the Son of God, the name above every name, the Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, the Word, the Light, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, wonderful Counselor, Emmanuel, he kneels down, takes off his outer garment, puts on a servant's towel, and he begins washing the feet of the disciples. Jesus took off his royal robes and put on the servant's towel to die for you and for me. This was the ultimate act of humility. Let's close our eyes in prayer.